they're kind of these two different paradigms. One of them, you're bearish on humanity. You think humans aren't going to do well. We're not going to produce stuff. We're not going to be efficient. The other one, you're bearish on central bankers and governments. And I know which one I'm betting on. I'm betting on humans. Hello there. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using to buy Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into today's interview, I do have a message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Cake Wallet, who I have recently started using as my mobile wallet for Bitcoin. Now, Cake Wallet is a non-custodial wallet, which means it protects both your security and privacy because it doesn't share important information with unnecessary third parties. With Cake Wallet, not only can you hodl Bitcoin, but you can easily pay privately with Monero. It has advanced features for Bitcoin, including coin control and automatic address switching. The app is also designed to make it very easy for you to set up your wallet and back up your keys. If you want to find out more, please head over to cakewallet.com or search for Cake Wallet in the Apple or Google app stores. Next up, we have a BCB group. BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am now a customer of BCB too. They heard about the difficulty I was having finding a payment services provider that understands Bitcoin and reached out to me. And now BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are now also expanding globally. They've also got this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. And if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you do want to become a BCB customer. Now, if you want to find out more about what they do, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Next up, we have Compass Mining, who are not just a sponsor. I am a customer of theirs, and I am back mining Bitcoin. And actually, do you know what? I've actually been back mining Bitcoin for about nine months with Compass, and I've already mined over 0.7 Bitcoin which has pretty much paid off two of my S19s already. And it's so good to be back mining. It's been a really interesting year. It's forced me to learn a lot more about mining again. Now, anyone can start mining with Compass. And to help you, Compass has launched their Compass score to help you make informed decisions about your next mining purchase. The score highlights how good each ASIC deal is, and it's based on a number of factors. Price, mine age, difficulty, hashing power, and the current Bitcoin price. Compass has made mining accessible to everyone, and as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. Now, if you are interested in mining, if you want to find out more, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. Also, we have Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm not selling at the moment. I'm only buying, and I'm also using the Gemini app for buying the dips, and I have set up a DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. Now, Gemini are running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade over $100 or more on Gemini. So if you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. How long have you been doing these with the video and in person? 
Well, so when I first started the podcast, it was in person. So my, oh, really? Yeah. So my first interview was I was in LA and uh, just called somebody up and bought the equipment on uh, Amazon and went and did it. And then uh, I pretty much did, I can't even remember the first remote one I did. I think you, you started before COVID, right? Oh, yeah. Way before. Did I do any remote ones before COVID? Occasionally. Yeah, mm. you do the occasional one. Um, but it really started with COVID. Yeah. yeah. When COVID happened, we had sure. to go remote. And then we that's when we introduced video. I think my 10th interview with Lynn Albrecht, I did with I did with video. Yeah. I did it all myself. And it was just too much work. Um, and I didn't know what I was doing with the camera. And then, so then COVID happened. And we did everything video because Zoom's easy. And then COVID ended, I wanted to go back to in-person because yeah. it's a better interview. And then we're like, shit, we need to figure out how to do this. And I can't remember. Did did Jeremy do the first one? I think so. After COVID? Yeah. Yeah. In New York, at least. Well, how did that happen? Did I trap? Did I put a tweet out and you replied to it? Yeah. And Yeah, and then you pitched and came in and we did a few. We didn't do them all, did we? Um, we only did one that first time. It was the Malice one. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we did a whole suite, a whole week in New York a few months later. Yeah. And so then, and then there was still the odd one we were doing remotely. Yeah. And then we just made a decision about sometime at the start of the year, like no more remote ones. We'll dedicate to doing all in person, uh, which comes with its challenges and its trade-offs. You can't sure. get the interviews you always want, but uh, it's about, you know, we, this is the product now. Absolutely. If you think of it as a product, this is it. Yeah. I remember seeing it one day and suddenly there was a whole video element to it. I yeah. thought that was cool. Yeah. And it's like seven people work on the show now, which is amazing wow. because it started with me. And yeah. Then, then me and Danny and then me, Danny and Ben. Yeah. And then it was Emma. Emma and Neil sort of same time. Same time. And then Jeremy and now Freddie. And, this, and it started in 20... 18, 19? 17. 17, yeah. really? So I did, first one was something like November 24th, yeah. 2017. And yeah. I think I did three. Uh, and then I didn't do any for a couple of months. Okay. And then I was like, shit, if we're going to do this, we're going to be consistent. So I did one a week for about, I want to say, yeah, it might have been less. And then I went to two. And then we went to three during COVID. Yeah, yeah. probably. I feel like it should be every other day, personally. If we had our own studio, say we were based in Texas and we yeah. lived there or even Bedford, it would I would do a show every two days. Yeah. I think that's the right amount. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's incredible how it's grown and how the team's grown and you know, we've become a real kind of like working unit and a machine. And, and uh, we're very lucky to, to get to do this. I get to hang out with my two buddies. <laughs> Travel the world, Travel stay the in world. nice Airbnbs, talk to cool Bitcoiners and interesting people. You think you're cool, do you? <laughs> <laughs> yes, man. Yeah, it is good. Anyway, Stephen, nice to meet you. Great to meet you. Uh, you came as a strong recommendation from Corey. He was like, you got to talk to Stephen, got to get him on the show, got to talk to him about inflation. Hot topic right now. Yes. Very hot yes. topic right now. And... Uh, the interesting thing about it being a hot topic right now is there seems to be a lot of confusion of what inflation is. Uh, not only on podcasts, not only with me, uh, not only with some of my guests, but it, what it's being reported in the media. Every Absolutely. time the price of something goes up, it's claimed that it's inflation, but that's not strictly true, right? 
Yeah. So it's a, it's widespread. I mean, you see this in, you know, even among financial circles and the Fed and government in all of these areas, uh, people working at top banks. The, the definition of inflation has changed a lot uh, over time. Uh, I think it's helpful to start with the original definition. Well, I think what we should do just before that, because not everyone's going to know who you are. Yeah. And um, yeah, I always think if it's your first time on the show, it's, it's good to just let people know who you are, what your background is, so they have, have some context around it. Yeah. So my name's Stephen Lupka, and I run Swan Private for Swan Bitcoin. And if you haven't heard of that, that is essentially Swan's concierge high net worth arm. So we work very closely one-on-one in a personal semi-advisory context with high net worth investors, small and medium businesses, uh, family office, trust. We now do retirement accounts, you know, all, all the sorts of different accounts you would need. And we we try to provide a, a personal relationship for people. And the reason, the reason we do this is, you know, a few years ago, looking out at the market, and interacting. And I worked as a consultant with high net worth investors for the last five years. So that, that's also my background. Um, but it was looking out at the market. And um, yeah, you had all these exchanges that had become really popular. We all know them. And, uh, and, and that works for people who are more tech savvy, who are more, they want to figure out how to do a limit order and figure out how to use the exchange. But there's an entire demographic of people that's used to the more hands-on financial services in the world. They're generally wealthier. They generally have already been very successful in life, and they don't want to put 150 hours into figuring out everything with Bitcoin, at least not not by themselves. They want to just talk to somebody who can guide them, who can make it so they don't make all of the same mistakes that I think so many of us, myself included, did make when first getting into it. Um, and so we launched the product to provide that sort of one-on-one relationship, and it's been an incredible uptake. Uh, it's it's been hugely successful. I've personally, in just you know, one-on-one calls, probably onboarded uh, you know a couple thousand high net worth investors. So it's probably up there in terms of you know some of, some of the most just direct onboarding in the space. And and as a group, we've done we've done you know several several thousand. So it's a way we're getting, you know, a lot of those people into the space, into Bitcoin, helping to educate and, and helping to provide them, you know, really what they're looking for in a, in, a, in a financial relationship. What about you? What about your background? What were you doing before this? Yeah. So before this, I had worked with, uh, I, w- I was a co-founder of uh, like a software development agency on the business side. I'm not a programmer, but I helped. Uh, we did, you know, traditional sort of software development, you know, some companies you might have heard of, but general small and medium business. I, you know, I led that for a while. We grew that business. Uh, when I got into, I, I got into Bitcoin about, you know, early 2017 before the bull market. And uh, I very quickly kind of you know realized this was something that was really interesting to me, and I wanna I wanna take the jump and try to make a career of it. Like I wanna I wanna actually work in this space. And so I worked as a uh, it started off as just a consultant for like I said um, you know wealthy investors, a, a couple small venture capital firms that were navigating the space. I helped a couple uh, colleges you know accept Bitcoin and you know do stuff like that. Um, and I did that for for a number of years. So, you know, background from, from sort of consulting in the space and also operating uh, an agency for software development. And how did Bitcoin grab you? Like, what was it? What was your moment? Yeah. 
So it's interesting. I feel like I had two kind of two sort of Bitcoin awakenings a little bit. Um, the first is I, I saw it as technology and I thought, okay, this is this cool technology. It's this payment network. It's global. You can store it yourself. That's super interesting. But it didn't fully click for me the importance of it. Um, and I thought, you know, that's interesting. And I was interested enough to jump into it. But it, it really was only probably a year or two later um, where I, I truly had been working on developing a deeper understanding of how the traditional financial system works and, you know, currency dynamics and, and, and just how, how the world works today. And the more I learned about how, how the financial system, how the monetary system actually operates, I started to see Bitcoin in a new light. And it was like, oh, this isn't just the technology. This is actually a new approach to money. And the question of money is actually a very significant one in today's world. It's a problem that, uh, you know, is in, in some angles, you could say unsolved, or there are at least challenges that we're facing. And that's why you've been going down the rabbit hole, researching, writing about things like yes. inflation. Absolutely. Well, Absolutely. Let's get into this, because like I say, this is the hot topic of the moment. Uh, the end of each month, or is it the end of each month? It's about halfway through the month, people are anticipating CPI numbers. Uh, they come out now, the inflation number's gone up. People tweet about it and say, buy Bitcoin, yada, yada. It's, 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 getting, it's almost repetitive now. It's, it's kind of losing its, its edge. But it's such a hot topic, not only here, but people outside of Bitcoin Twitter into the private world of Facebook. I'm seeing people talk about it, and they've probably, this is probably the first time they've, they've thought about inflation. It's on the news constantly. We've just made a film about it. But the real understanding of uh, inflation is pretty incorrect by most people. So you decided to attack this as a, as a topic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, yeah, first of all, what you said is totally correct. It is, uh, I think in, inflation and what is going on in this moment has grabbed the average person's attention in a way that it, it never has before. I, I think the average person did not, you know, in the last two decades, didn't care about inflation at all. And, you know, why would they? It was relatively low. It didn't really impact their life. But people are really feeling that today. Um, and so, you know, I, I, you know, from surveys I've seen, it is the number one political issue. It's influencing policy direction, Fed action. Now, that's putting pressure on Europe, on Japan. There's a whole bunch of dynamics maybe we'll get into, but it's a, it's a big it's a big story right now and, and, a, and a big dynamic. The issue, and, and one of the first things that I wanted to address, uh, you know, in, in, in what I wrote and what I've been talking about is the definition of inflation has not been constant over time. Uh, it's not correct to assume that the way people, what people mean today when you see someone on the media saying inflation, it hasn't always meant what they in, in, intended to mean today. So the first definition, I think it's helpful to start here, was when paper currency was actually backed by gold. So there was a, a physical deposit of a fixed amount of something tangible in the bank, and then the, the paper slip was just for transaction, and it was redeemable for the collateral. And so the first definition of inflation is, let's say they had a, 100 pounds of gold in the bank, and just for conversation's sake, let's say there were 100 notes, and every, every note was a pound of gold. Um, the banks would then, or, or you know, the people holding the collateral, would actually issue more paper notes. So they're originally 100 pounds of gold, 100 notes. They issue another 100 notes. There's now 200 notes versus 100 pound of gold. But all the notes say 
redeemable for one pound of gold. There's not, there's not enough collateral. And so that process of issuing more of those paper claims uh, was the original definition of inflation. So it very, like quite literally, it was a debasement of the money supply. It was an expansion of the, the financial abstract layer of, uh, you know, of money here. Uh, had been expanded, more had been created. And that was the original definition of inflation. But if uh, 100 people went and redeemed their gold, that's fine. But the 101st wouldn't have been able to. So would they uh, devalue the gold? Would they they change it and say you can only claim half a pound of gold with your 100 notes? Is that what would happen? So generally, the reason these dynamics worked is because People, unless they lost confidence in the paper money, they would not go to redeem it. There was really no reason to redeem it. And if they did try to do that, you've got a bank run. And, and those obviously did happen. And, you know, people don't, people don't get their money out. Um, but so that's, that's the first definition. So the first time inflation is used, it's used in that context. And it goes on to kind of continue to mean something similar. So monetary systems change. Uh, it's there's still gold backing, like you know, at a certain stage in the U.S. dollar, there's still gold, but the average person can't redeem it for it. Uh, and then we go to a fiat currency, and obviously there's no collateral there. Inflation still means at this time generally um, an expansion of the money supply, a dilution of the money supply, and then later on, uh, I don't know exactly at what point, but it starts to also be used to refer to consumer prices going up and increases. And and when it referred to an increase in the money supply, was it measured at that time? So if there was a you know, 10% increase in the money supply, was inflation at 10% or... So it was actually measured against that? No, so... Or was I, it just a term to uh, identify what was happening? So we're, we're going to get into this, I'm sure, but the money supply is really very difficult to measure, uh, at least as I'm going to define it. So I'll, I'll lead that a little bit just to say that you can define the money supply as just the amount of currency. And in that, you generally have more ability to measure it. But I, I think that's actually also the wrong way to view it. And the money supply uh, encompasses not just currency, but everything that functions as money or is a money substitute. So... Uh, yes, you could measure, and uh, I'm not sure exactly, you know, if I don't think they, they obviously didn't have a similar thing to CPI or in what way those metrics were reported. It's obviously changed over different societies and civilizations, but um, it was, you know, it was generally referred to the way that they were expanding it. Obviously, when we're on fiat, that, that expansion is tracked more cleanly. Right. So if something, give me an example of a money substitute. So I would argue that stocks are a money substitute, and that's okay. a, that's kind of a, maybe a contrarian definition. But in the article, and I'm sure we'll talk about that, I think all assets are money substitutes in today's world, and it's because property? yep, property, real estate, money substitute, less uh, less. It's a little more cumbersome than stocks, and I would even argue that bond bonds definitely are, and especially when they're used as collateral. Okay, so if I Sorry, we're probably jumping ahead here, but say I buy a property, there's a housing boom, my house price doubles in value, I feel richer. Yes. And if I want to uh, borrow money against that, I can. Exactly. And by virtue of that, the there is an increase in the money supply kind of, there's, the actual supply doesn't increase, but there is a notional increase in the money supply because it's the total value of everything. So if we if we live in an economy that's just money and property, yeah. And all properties double in value, then essentially there 
there is a notional increase in the money supply because I believe I can get money for that and then start spending it. Exactly. And so this would only ever be a problem, right? Like this, this, this only ever unwinds if everyone tried to convert all the assets into currency. So unless everybody tries to sell every stock and every home and everything and get US dollars for it, it, it never needs to add up and the assets just function as money. And you know, I'll give I'll give an example of this. So let's say you had a you had a property and uh, you wanted to sell that property and you wanted to sell it to me. And uh, let's say I offered you ten percent more than anybody else was gonna was gonna bid. You're like, it's great. But then I say, here's the deal, Peter. Um, I will I can only pay for this in Apple shares. So I want to buy your house. You want to sell it. I'm I'm you know I am committing to signing the contract. I'm going to pay you ten percent more than anybody else. But it's going to be in Apple shares. Okay, sounds like a good deal. You're, exactly. That's your first, you, you know your only concern is maybe going to be is there some loophole here where I'm going to trick you or you uh-huh. don't actually get the shares because it's unusual. But your concern is not do the Apple shares have value? Will you be able are they, are they good? Do they have financial value? That question never occurs because they're as good as money. Maybe there's a little volatility. And so as long as you had confidence that you're going to get those shares and the transactions legit. You don't care that it's Apple shares and not U.S. dollars, especially if you're making a little premium for it. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, but also, if everyone did try and sell and convert all their properties to dollars at the same time, a massive increase in supply. Maybe demand isn't met. The prices of properties would fall again. Sure. So we don't actually have that scenario. But the notional idea that all your assets are have are a money substitute. It kind of makes sense because whenever you calculate your net worth, yeah. you don't cal- calculate your net worth based on what's in your bank account. It's in your bank account and your property and your even the value of your business, yeah. you know, your equity in your business. Okay, and you're never concerned that oh, you know, th- there's probably a hundred x more total financial value of assets than there are actual U.S. dollars. Like the world could never fit all the assets into all the currency, but nobody's losing sleep over that, right? Because we live in a we live in an economy and in a financial system where the assets are uh, as good as gold. They're as good as money. They're they're a, they're a near perfect money substitute. But then you could have inflation of the without actually the government increasing the money supply. And that's the key. And that and that's mm. really what I've been trying to talk about is so the traditional traditional economic definition is there is only expansion of the money supply when a commercial bank issues a loan. And the reason they define it that way is because uh, that is the way in which new U.S. dollars are actually printed or you know, actually created and are injected into like the circulating supply, the M2, the real economy. And so traditionally, traditional finance people and you know, standard economic definitions are saying, okay, Commercial banks lending, that's increasing the money supply, that's inflation of the money supply. Stock S&P 500 going up, that's not. But I think that just like we've been talking about, that's, that's wrong. And when, with, you know, when the S&P 500 goes up and this, the, the value of all of these money substitutes increases, there is more financial value in the system. There's more money in the system. And a way that I like to think about this, and I think a way that would help people in general in just navigating the world today and how the world works is to separate the financial from the real. And so 
What I mean by that is you have the total financial value of everything, all the stocks and all the currency, all the bonds, all, all of everything. And that's the, the you know, let's, just, let's just say it's denominated in dollars. That's the total amount of US dollar value in the world. And then you have all the oil, all the cars, all the homes, all the computers, the silicon, the nitrogen fertilizer, the plastics. That's the real stuff. Like that's where actual economic value comes from. And that's what really matters. That's what makes our modern lives so good. We live these great lives where we have air conditioning and we have abundant food. And people confuse the financial layer, which is an abstraction built on top of the real world of goods and services and commodities. Um, But so if that financial layer is getting bigger, but that is not accompanied by twice as many cars, twice as many homes, twice as much fertilizer, there's now a disconnect and there is inflation. And can that increase, though, when you talk about uh, it's not accompanied by cars and productivity, but can you include virtual items within that as well? You can to a certain extent. So, like, let's say we have a software... um, I create a business software, and every business that adopts this software has a 10% increase in productivity. That counts for sure. That has, it's, it's digital, it's not a physical thing, but it has improved real-world economic function. Eventually, that digital thing needs to translate into something physical, right? Um, you know, as, as much as people are trying to like adopt purely digital stuff, it eventually needs to somehow benefit your actual life. And that could be telecommunication, like telecommunication is a real benefit of your actual life. But, uh, but to answer your question, yes. If, if that digital thing actually results in an improvement in the real quality of people's lives, then that does count. Well, I, I bring it up because in some ways, Bitcoin is a yeah. virtual property. Totally. Huh. So how do you get to... Because. I'm now getting more confused. Let, let me let me yeah. hop, hop in on what you just said. So, Bitcoin is an, is is digital, but it's also abstract. Money is an abstraction, but that doesn't mean money's bad, or that doesn't mean abstractions are bad, because the, the financial systems, monetary systems, are an, an extraordinary coordination tool for the real world of activity. Without money, without financial systems, real world economic activity falls apart. It's completely inefficient to trade and to interact. So, you know, money and and, and abstractions can have a a profound impact on our ability to to build, you know, abundant lives. Right. Okay. So how do we get to uh, an accurate definition of what inflation is? And is this one that you, you've built yourself, or is this a something you've discovered from other people that a group of other people uh, commonly agree on? Yeah. So, um, so I think Milton Friedman is very well yes. known for. Uh, he, he has a quote that's I, you know I might not get I wrote it, it exactly. down here. Uh, so yeah. I can give you it perfectly. Perfect. Inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon in the sense that it is and can be produced only by a more rapid increase in the quantity of money than in output. But when we talk about the quantity of money, he doesn't talk about money substitutes, or does he separately from this? I don't know if he does specifically, but um, the concept of a money substitute emerges from the Austrian school. So I'm by no means the first person to to say that these other things can function as money. But I do think that it's, it's, it's almost, it's a first principles thing. If you just kind of think through this, right? Like 
it's it's clear that you know you will accept an Apple share, you know, as much as you will accept dollars. Like it functions as money. Um, I think it's only the modern economic dialogue that tries to shoehorn the definition of money into this really narrow thing. Um, so you know, it's something I've thought about, but it's also something I, I'm by I'm by no means the first person to say this is the definition of inflation or money substitutes or a thing. But just just now for me, what the definition of inflation is for you and for the listeners? The definition of inflation for me is an expansion of the money supply, and so that can be printing more currency, but it can also be asset prices going up in a way that is not justified by an actual increase in real economic value. So there's there's two mm. things here. So traditionally, people will say that when the S&P 500 goes up, and, let's, and it, it doubles about every six or seven years, it goes up quite a bit. And so the traditional explanation for that is that the world got more productive, right? Like we innovated, we developed new technologies, we built more stuff. And that justifies the increase in the value of these companies. Maybe there's some inflation that's part of there too, like traditional inflation that's part of there too. Um, but I would push back on that as well. So if we say that the, the S&P 500 doubles, let's just say every six years, it might be seven. Um, to me, if we think that that financial value is supposed to be kind of a reflection of the real world and of like our actual society, that would mean to say that our society is becoming twice as abundant, twice as wealthy, twice as productive every six years. And I would challenge anybody to look at your life today, your home, your actual day-to-day -day life, your car, your job, and compare it to six years ago. Is your life twice as abundant? You know, maybe if you've been very successful, it is. But but for the average person, is uh, are, is their life very different today from six years ago? And if you go back another six years, has it doubled again? Has society doubled again? I I would argue it actually hasn't changed much at all. I think I think on average it hasn't. And actually, yeah. um, we had uh, yesterday we had. Um, on the show, um, uh, Jeet. Do you know Jeet? Yeah. And yeah. he's actually talking about we're actually in civilization, uh, civil, civilizational decline mm -hmm. right now, but we have a veil. It's yes. like a veil, this veil that is hiding this. And so we have this belief that we're, we're richer and wealthier, um, but it's a complete myth. It's a complete, it's bullshit. We've actually gone through complete civil, civilizational decline. God, that's a toughie. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I get it. I, I agree. I understand exactly what you're saying. Um, I, I don't think most people do. I think a lot of people yeah. right now feel certainly worse off than they, they did six years ago. Exactly. Yeah. I yeah, and I th I think there's definitely a chance that Jeet uh, is correct there, and we are actually in. I mean, and depending on how you define it, I think it's it's obviously true to some degree. I don't know if I'm fully fully on that side. Uh, there's definitely a lot to be said for it, but I am 100% on the side that we are not in this like exponential advance of technical technology development. There's this very common belief in Silicon Valley and tech investors that we are living in like the fastest increase of technology that we've ever seen. 
Uh, and I, I very much disagree with that. I, and I think, you know, we, get, we have to start from kind of first principles here. If you look at the life of somebody who was born in the 1900s, like, ni- let's say 1900, and you look at, like, what they're, you know, obviously they go through the Great Depression and there's the war. But if you look at, like, their actual life, their actual life was transformed with regularity. Everything, we develop all these technologies, like, you know, your house actually changes. You get air conditioning, you get a refrigerator, electricity, telephones, like cars, all these, you know, there's there's really broad-based transformations of tangible technology. And from the time you were born in 1900 to the time, you know, you died, if you were fortunate in 1990, the world was totally different. Your life was irrevocably different. Um, and if I look back on the last 20 years, right, from let's, you know 2002 to 2022, outside of like cell phones and efficiency and computers and like the TV is, is thinner, you know, but it's still a TV. We had a TV back then. I don't see that life has changed that much at all. It's good. It's great. Like by no, by, I want to, I want to, I want to just echo that. Like our lives are fantastic today. We live in an extraordinarily abundant world, the most abundant it's ever been. But the rate of change and improvement, I do not see as going very quickly. I think we've hit a stagnation. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you. So, so what is the use in actually having a correct understanding of inflation, and and what are the problems with the uh, just attributing price increases? as inflation. Yeah. So the point of having a correct definition of inflation is first, it centers the dialogue. And I believe very fundamentally that like we need to have this recentering where the actual world is the real value. And the financial world is a useful tool that helps us coordinate it. Um, having the right definition is important because A, it, it gets rid of the smokescreen. There is this kind of, you were talking about this, I think, a little bit with uh, what you said with Jeet's comments, but when we only define inflation as issuing of more currencies, that's how we get to this point where, oh, well, QE isn't inflationary, right? Like, uh, oh, the central bank's QE policies, they're not inflationary. And we can talk about the actual bond dynamics there, but this big asset, uh, you know, this asset bull market, stocks going up, all these things going up, you know, that's commonly seen as like, oh, that's not inflation. We're not creating inflation. But if we define inflation in the way I'm arguing we should, um, what you see is that what actually happens there is you have a, a fixed or let's just say it's growing at 2% a year or, or, or whatever, the real world of actual things. Let's say that's, that's improving at 2% a year, but then the asset market is going up 10% a year, Right. And so if the the value of all of the financial assets is increasing faster than like the real world of actual economic activity and stuff and what people want, then essentially the money is being debased, right? There is more money chasing the same or, or, or a supply of things that hasn't grown as much. And in that, there's, there's, there's a fundamental distortion there. There's a dilution of your value. There's this, so many people have talked about in the space, but you're constantly chasing inflation. You're constantly having to, to, to make up for your lost value. And ultimately, it's an inefficiency, right? Um, financial and monetary systems are essentially an information system, right? Like, they are a way in which 
the system, the, the economic system processes data in, in the form of price. So when, you know, we go to the, the supermarket and we buy a, you know, a loaf of bread, we just see the price of that loaf of bread. But contained within that price is everything that has impacted that. How, many, how much wheat was produced, the cost of transporting that wheat across the ocean, the efficiency. And so the, 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 price, the price signals, which you know, is, is often talked about, are, uh, are these data points in an information system that processes all of this in a way that I couldn't, you couldn't, no singular human being has access to all of the information that's contained within price and within a financial system. But, but that's, that, that signal, that, that the, the fidelity of that data, it gets distorted when you're constantly expanding and changing the money supply. And it results in capital misallocation, you know, p- uh, wrong investment decisions, all sorts of chaos. Yeah, that's a, a lot of what Jeff Booth spoke about last yeah. time I was with him, talking about how the expansion of the money supply distorts the money, distorts yes. the system, and yes. that does lead to malinvestment. But what I'm trying to understand here, just uh, help me work through this. We can have inflation because the value of assets like property increases. And that would come from, hopefully, from uh, the world becoming more productive, people having more money, maybe wanting to move up the housing ladder. But that feels like a positive thing. But we can also get inflation from expansion of the money supply. And yes, if you're near the spigot and that benefits you, great. But generally speaking, if that's diluting the system, that's negative inflation. Yes. But, but both of them can drive inflation. But one feels positive, one feels negative. Sure. Does no. that make any sense? Yeah, it does make sense. It makes perfect sense. And so, you know, I think in, in just tweaking, refining the definition just a tiny bit, I would say that inflation is where there is the increase in asset prices that is not driven by economic activity or okay. improvements. Okay, yeah. So if it's going up because, you know, if, you know, if I, in, let's say I, I'm the CEO, I'm a founder, and I create a company that can extract nitrogen from the air and convert it to fertilizer. This is this huge problem in the world. We could stop using you know, so many resources. That adds a tremendous amount of economic value to the world. Let's say my company is instantly worth a trillion dollars. There's now a trillion dollars of more financial assets. But my company has now also added a trillion dollars of real value to the world in this scenario. So I would say that's not inflation. You, you could argue that any increase, you, you could say that it is. I don't think that's as helpful. I would say that's not inflation. It's only when they're mismatched. And that's very hard to define. Like I'm gonna, mm. I'll be the first to say that is very uh, difficult to get a quantitative measure of, to define. I don't know exactly how you would you know, actually measure that in an accurate way. But it's it's functional in a way to think about the world and to view inflation. And if you if you have the definition, how how do you measure it, and how do you interpret that measurement to yourself? Because I mean, I even spoke to Eric Weinstein about this, where he said the problem with uh, measuring inflation is, well, what does that mean for me? You know, my yeah. my assets are different from yours. My purchases are different from yours. So how do we actually use inflation ourselves to to react to it? Yeah. Absolutely. So, I, you know, I think to answer that question, it's, it, it, is, it is on a personal basis. You need to see how this myriad of economic factors of money supply dilution, asset prices going up, and, you know, how that translates into the 
actual prices, so the traditional consumer prices of the stuff you're going to buy. And that's that impact is going to be different for everybody. And that's, you know, I, I think, I mean, that's to answer your question, that's something that can only be navigated on a person-by-person basis, right? Like, mm. you know, somebody who has owned their home for 20 years uh, and somebody who is paying rent in Miami, they're, they're impacted in a very different way from the, you know, C, the rent component of CPI, right? Um, so, you know, the actual real number of uh, consumer price increase, that's going to differ on a person-to-person basis. Uh, and it's one reason that even if we're just, we're just looking at CPI and we're just looking at consumer price increases, which, you know, I'm saying is different than inflation, but even if we're just looking at that, that measure is very, very inaccurate, right? It, 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 it's like a one-size-fits-all number that may in no way match your actual consumption patterns or my actual consumption patterns. Okay, before we carry on with the interview, I do have a message from my show sponsors. From the people behind sportsbet.io, we have BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino. Trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they also have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money cannot buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against other people and 24-7 live chat support, Big Casino really is the best online casino for Bitcoiners. So if you want to find out more, head over to Big Casino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award. That is at bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. Please remember to gamble responsibly. Next up, it is BlockFi. Now, BlockFi bridges the world of traditional finance and Bitcoin, empowering you for this future financial world. And for the people of the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards credit card provides the easiest way to earn more Bitcoin. There are no fees to use the card, no annual fee and no foreign transaction fees. And you can get 1.5% back in Bitcoin on every card purchase, but also not just that. You can also get 2% back in Bitcoin on every dollar spent over 50000 annually. If you'd like to stack sacks with BlockFi, then please head over to BlockFi.com to find out more and read the terms and conditions. All available at BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Next up, it's the Pacific Bitcoin Conference, hosted by Swan Bitcoin on November the 10th and 11th this year in sunny Los Angeles. Now, I've known Jan, Brady and Corey for years, and they're pulling out all the stops to make this the biggest Bitcoin only event ever. I'll be emceeing the conference alongside Natalie Brunel and Stefan Levera, and there's going to be an incredible lineup of speakers. This conference is going to be the right mix of education and good fun with unique experiences such as a surf simulator and an 80s arcade gaming lounge, which I cannot wait to see as I am a gamer from the 80s. They are inviting all the smartest minds in the Bitcoin space to discuss a range of topics from macro to nation-state adoption, mining, and to lightning. Swan are also offering a massive 20% discount to this amazing event to listeners of my show, so just head over to pacificbitcoin.la and use the code PETER at the checkout. That is pacificbitcoin.la, P-A-C-I-F-I-C-B-I-T-C-O-I-N.la, and use the code PETER. Also, today we have Ledger, and the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. 
Ledger have recently announced the launch of the new Nano S Plus, and with its larger screen, it makes it easier for you to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. Now, the Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. And you know what? I've been a customer of Ledger since 2017. I love my original Nano S, and I now love the S Plus. Ledger is the smartest way and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. If you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Do you, do you know Jeff Snyder? Sounds familiar. Yeah, so we had him on the show this week, and we were talking about inflation with him. Um, and we were talking about the massive increase in prices that we're seeing at the moment across the board. And he said, this is not inflation. Mm-hmm. And his view is that the government has been printing a lot of money, you know, expanding the money supply quite significantly ever since 2008. Sure. But when you look at the inflation numbers, it's only recently we've seen a large increase in inflation. And he said, well, what's happened? We well, said, we closed down the global economy mm-hmm. and we put a shock in the system of the supply chains and logistics. And we also have a war. He said, the reason energy prices are up, it's got, it's got nothing to do with the increase in the money supply. It's actually from a lack of investment yes. in energy. And it's also because the war has seen the prices increase. He said, that is a price increase. That's not inflation. And he said, the, the majority of other things have gone up. It's because we've stopped an economy. We've restarted it. So he doesn't think the money that's gone into the system has caused these price increases. Do you think that's a fair observation? I generally agree with that. So, you know, we'd have to break it down into what percentage of it is that and what percentage of it is the money that was printed. But I'm generally on the side that, and, you know, he said it, you just said it, those are price increases. They're not inflation. And so I am generally on the side that a lot of the price increases we're seeing are because of actual disruptions to the supply of energy and uh, really brilliantly Yes, the, the lack of investment into it, that is, that is huge. I mean, we have underinvested in energy f- tremendously. I mean, we've underinvested uh, in the real world tremendously. So much of our capital has gone to VC investment in Silicon Valley, and so little of our capital has gone to energy production, uh, agricultural efficiency improvements, steel, concrete, you know, fertilizer, all these things. Um, but but in that there's a really great point, and I and I I, I kind of give two scenarios of this in my article. Yeah, that was great. You should work through that. Yeah. So in the article, I say I give two two scenarios where CPI in the United States goes up. And so the first scenario is just imagine a theoretical country, and this country is responsible for forty percent of all copper production in the world. And, you know, we use copper is very important. We use it in electronics, electricity. And so one day the the country gets overthrown by anti-industrial rebels. And these are people that think, you know, the modern world is bad and we need to discontinue and go back to like an agricultural lifestyle. And so overnight the, the, the copper production goes to basically nothing. And so the world is shocked by this and electronics go up and, you know, renewables become prohibitively expensive and countries have to juggle their energy supply and burn more fossil fuels like what, you know, we're seeing in a lot of places right now. And so CPI goes up to 15% because there was an actual disruption of the real world. And so that's scenario one. And scenario two is uh, the United States 
gets overthrown by rebels. This time it's modern monetary theory rebels. So the MMT Stephanie, Stephanie Kelton. Yeah, she she leads the charge and she overthrows the 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 treasury and we implement $5,000 checks to every man, woman and child. Uh, every month. And this money just gets printed by the Fed and gets distributed. Now there's all this money in the system. People obviously, they buy more stuff. It stresses the supply of things. There's not enough stuff. We see same sort of things. Electronics get more expensive. Uh, there's energy constraints. Countries have to pivot and burn more fossil fuels. And so both of these scenarios produce a world where, let's say, CPI is 15%. In one case, CPI is 15% because 40% of global copper production is offline. In the other scenario, CPI is 15%. So there are increases in the prices of goods, but it's fundamentally driven by solely monetary creation. And I say, which of those scenarios should Bitcoin protect investors from? In other words, which scenario is Bitcoin going to go up in? Some people think both, but I say it's only the second one. Yeah, and that makes sense. Because if you think it through logically in this uh, random country, this uh, what did you call it again? (laughs) I called it Rondia. Yeah, Rondia. Now, say the rebels get overthrown and a new... Yeah, capitalist com- uh, new capitalist government comes into power and they restart production, you'll have a massive increase of copper into the market and the yep. prices will come back down. Exactly. So you'll get a price fall. But once, you know, in the second scenario where Stephanie Kelton and Andrew Yang have implemented <laughs> the UBI and increased money in the system, that money's never coming out. So that raises up the... Correct. The, the kind of baseline for the cost of goods. Correct. So, yeah. Huh. Yeah. And... This is where it gets super interesting because we're going to get into why uh, people have been saying, well, Bitcoin has failed as an inflation. And you disagree with that. I do. I do disagree. Um, you know, in, in the example we just talked about. So in that second scenario. Sorry. So our problem at the moment is because we've had both at the same time. Correct. There have been both. Yeah. And so let's, let's just walk through that. In the beginning, there was tremendous monetary creation. So the U.S. prints a ton of money to bail out. COVID and, and everything else. Bitcoin goes from 10K to 69K. Like, let's make no mistake, when they printed money and they expanded the money supply, Bitcoin was one of the best performing assets. Like, it went up tremendously. If you bought Bitcoin before there was inflation, aka printing money, you did very well. The Bitcoin hedged you against the expansion of the money supply. Everything and other things went up in value too, and, and we'll we'll get into that later on. Of yes, stocks go up, yes, houses go up, but Bitcoin went up more, and there's a discussion there. But so Bitcoin goes up, there's inflation, and um, it protected investors, and and that that money creation started circling, uh, circulating through the economy, and that's the other thing about inflation of the money supply. It doesn't show up in consumer prices immediately or evenly because it circulates in different ways depending on who got it, how they spend it, what the supply situations are there. But so eventually that printed money gets its way through the economy and it goes faster because they actually did stimulus checks and you start seeing the prices of goods come up. But they haven't been printing money for a while. So that was the initial inflationary impulse and Bitcoin did very well there. Later on, we have this other inflationary wave that is really centered in food and energy, and it's because, of, it's because of the war. It's because of supply chain disruptions. 
We can't separate that from decades of underinvestment. So let's be clear. Like the war was the, the spark that set everything ablaze. But we built up a pile of kindling for decades by not investing in this stuff. So we can't just blame the war, right? Okay. That's not yeah, the yeah. right way to look at it. Um, but the war did kick it off. That is the other sort of inflation. That is a, a massive disruption of supply in literally countries do not have access to enough natural gas, enough fertilizer, enough food. You know, Sri Lanka is in, in a devastating crisis. Other countries are in devastating crises. Prices and, you know, gas in Europe is hugely expensive. Um, that's the other sort of inflation. And that's where the CPI is coming from right now. It's, 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 we, we had the impact, and there is still some of that impact from the printed money. But most of what we're seeing today, I believe, is, is that actual supply disruption. And so not only should Bitcoin... Or, or gold, neither Bitcoin nor gold nor other inflation hedges should protect you from that. Like in a world where there are supply disruptions, the world is poorer. You don't get to hold an abstract financial instrument and get richer when the world gets poorer. The only way you can do that is like, you know, you have a derivative on the price of oil. Like, okay, you know, that works, you own an oil producer, whatever. But apart from that, there's no inflation hedge that, that works in that way. And so that's the inflation we're seeing today. And so Bitcoin's not going up with that. And you add to it actually, in my definition of inflation, and, and in what I think is, you know, not, not mine, but the correct definition of inflation, there's actually been, it, it's, it's, it's disinflationary, it's anti-inflationary. The money supply has been contracted tremendously. Stocks are down enormously. Ah, that's interesting. Okay, right. Because there's been a correlation between the S&P and Bitcoin. Yes. And so if stocks are falling in price, naturally, Bitcoin should... F but have you measured the actual total uh, supply of money and money substitutes? Like, has that actually shrunk? Yes. Yeah. It's, it's down tremendously. Um, and that's why Bitcoin's also down. In my opinion, yes. And, right. you know, there are scenarios, like theoretical scenarios, where stocks could come down and Bitcoin could go up. But in reality, you know, we're looking at a world where, so interest rates are up. So the Fed is contracting currency dynamics. Yeah. Stocks, which are just another part of the money supply, are down, like, enormously. Um, housing is kind of down, or at least has stopped going up as quickly. And the bond market has been contracting. So that's across the board, all the aspects of the money supply that I would point at, they're all contracted. They're all down. So that's actually the opposite of inflation. And so if we're saying Bitcoin is an inflation hedge, there's actually not inflation right now. We're in a monetary contraction. We're not in an inflation. We're in a monetary contraction with consumer prices going up. But what is the reason that Bitcoin contracts with them? Like what? What is it? Because the people who hold the assets, they're losing value in their stocks. It's a they want to hold cash. Therefore, what can they? What can they liquidate? Is that what's happening? There's a ton of. I mean, there's a ton of actual market dynamics, right? From you know fear and losing confidence, or you know you're getting margin called on your your loan, or your stocks are going down, so you're free, you know to three arrows getting liquidated and Celsius failing. So I mean, there's a million like micro factors. Yeah. But the bottom line is when the total value of all financial assets and the money supply is down tremendously. I mean, it's it's common, you know, we've been in this space, we talk about 
Bitcoin is here to protect you from money printing and from expansions of the money supply. It has other functions too, and censorship resistance. And mm-hmm. and I don't I don't mean to you know I'm not talking about those, but those are also a critical part of Bitcoin's identity. But I'm 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 focused on the store value piece here. Right. Okay. So if we go back to CPI, yeah, CPI is can be kind of a useful tool as long as it's not just linked to inflation. I mean, it's good to have a, a general understanding mm-hmm. of the increases in price. Yes, look, it can be totally wrong. Yeah, yeah, it could be reported at nine point one percent, and it's actually feels like fifteen percent yeah. for you as an individual. But to have that general understanding that prices are increasing yes. is useful. To attribute it as inflation or down to inflation is the mistake. Correct. It's so CPI. I think is directionally correct. So it may not be the actual number. It may not be 9%. It may be 15% is like the quote unquote real increase of consumer prices. But I generally think it's directionally accurate. If it's going up, those prices are probably going up. If it's coming down, those prices are coming coming down. It's just the number isn't exactly correct. And so that CPI increase, it could be driven by actual inflation, aka increasing the money supply, or it could be driven by supply disruption. And both of those are an option. Either way, the CPI itself is not inflation. It's a lagging indicator. And, and that's the other thing to understand with it. You know, we, we've kind of talked about this a little bit, but they print money, there's actual inflation of the money supply, and then that will translate to consumer prices going up. There will be CPI increases from that, but it's a lagging indicator. So. Would it be more helpful, therefore, if money was backed by something? So if whether it's gold or Bitcoin, if it was backed, would that help to get a better measure of inflation? So, I mean, in a world where money, if, if you take away the power for money to be created from thin air, it dramatically simplifies this equation to, to a really manageable extent. I mean, that is the mm. bottom line. It's... Um, you know, it part of the dynamic there. Part of the reason there can be so much monetary expansion is because the Fed has countless tools to increase the money supply. It's not just, I mean, not that they even do the stimulus checks, but it's not just stimulus checks. There's there's QE, there's repo markets, there's swap lines, there's all sorts of tools that most people and even myself included don't you know understand in sufficient detail. I mean, this is something that. I think isn't talked about enough, but there is no human being on this planet that understands all the intricacies of the global financial system. It is more complex than anybody has truly detailed knowledge of. And it's a big fucking mess. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's, let's just flip to housing for a moment. Yeah. So housing's the one area of the economy that hasn't been hit too hard just yet. But there are concerns... Uh, that interest in um, you know, n- you know, new house buyers or the number of people interested in buying a house, that is slowing down. I've seen some data yep. based on that. If the housing market was to call and we were to see a housing crash, that would most likely therefore lead also to a fall in the price of Bitcoin because that would be a contraction in the value of um, substitute assets. Yeah, if there was a dramatic housing correction, and that's, I mean, and that's going to spill over into stocks, and that's going to spill over into people's spending behaviors, and yeah, that's that's most likely going to be a drag on Bitcoin. It's it's hard for me. 
I don't I don't see Bitcoin as like uh, going to the moon because houses collapse twenty percent. It's really interesting because we've gone through the cycle now where prior to the last bull run where we were seeing increases in the expansion of the money supply and Bitcoiners were saying, look, Bitcoin is a, a hedge against inflation. And then Bitcoin's hit $70,000. We started to get inflation numbers and Bitcoin's been falling since. Uh, people have been saying, well, Bitcoin is an inflation hedge. Yeah. It's not an inflation hedge because look, the price has fallen at a time when we've got high inflation. But actually, it has completely performed as an inflation hedge. But it's because people ha haven't been accurately describing what inflation is or fully understanding those numbers. So, yeah, huh. Exactly. So if you knew it, the way to time it is you want, you want to be buying Bitcoin when you're getting indicators that mm, the government's going to increase the money supply. That's Correct. going to happen. But if you get to the point where you feel like, oh, recession's coming, we're going to see some tightening here. You know, perhaps the stock market's... Oh yeah, needs a correction. That's a time to exit Bitcoin. Yeah, if you're if you're looking to trade Bitcoin and that's how you're managing it, I mean <laughs> no. that's that's the general. I mean yeah, that is the general yardstick, right? When when the money supply is going to contract, that's certainly not going to be bullish for Bitcoin. And when the money supply is going to expand, that's going to be generally more bullish for Bitcoin than any other asset. So I want to I want to I'm sure people listening at this point, some people have thought, you know, well Stephen, you know, when they print money, everything goes up. Right. Mm. And that's so you're just saying that, you know, Bitcoin is anything else. Right. It's just uh, everything goes up when the Fed prints money. And I, and I understand that, uh, you know, pushback. Um, but, uh, you know, to to address that. Um, you want so Bitcoin by virtue of not being real, it's not a real thing. Bitcoin isn't, you know, tangible. It's an abstract money and it's mm -hmm. digital too to boot even if it was gold i would still say it's technically abstract it's what its real financial identity is but um when they are manipulating the abstract layer so the financial layer and they're engineering that um if you can hold an abstract monetary instrument that isn't real it doesn't have cash flows it doesn't have debt it doesn't need maintenance it doesn't have you know, property taxes, you don't have to rent it out, you don't have to do all these things you have to do with other assets. You know, money, money is essentially a virtuous bubble. So money is this, it, it's this bubble that, you know, doesn't need to come down. It is, uh, it, it can command really whatever price it needs to if it's just money. And so in, in a world where they're printing money, Bitcoin is, is, is this pristine, pure, inflation hedge where, yes, stocks will go up. Yes, housing will go up. You could buy those things and you will get more dollars as those prices increase. But you know, if you buy a stock, that stock has competition. They could make a bad product decision. They could get you know, disrupted. And you know, same thing with houses in different ways. People can move to different areas. There could be a hurricane, all these sorts of things. Bitcoin has none of those risks. And um, we live in a world where all of these financial assets um, are essentially, they're just trying to catch the wind of inflation. They're, they're, they're not going up. I would say that you know, a single digit percentage of broad asset growth is because of real productivity, real economic increases. And the rest of it is just inflation. Single digit, maybe you know, 
10%, 15%. It's a low amount. The majority of it is actually just inflation. And so these assets have been turned into these liquidity proxies. Investors buy them, and most of the gains they're getting are just inflation. They're not really betting on, uh, you know, one of these companies making twice as many products or having an engineering breakthrough, maybe, you know, in some cases, but broadly, no. And so Bitcoin, it's not this imperfect liquidity proxy. It's not this thing you're trying to turn into a store of value. That's just what it is. It's just money. It's just this this beautiful instrument that is designed to protect your financial value. So when they are messing with that layer, I see Bitcoin, yeah, I think it's going to move directionally with monetary expansion. So are are other assets. But Bitcoin is a much cleaner way. It's generally, for the foreseeable future, I I predict that it's going to go up more than those other assets. And it obviously also has other benefits, like you can store it yourself, you can transact with it, there's all the other other stuff. Well, yeah, because it's inelastic, and if more people start to consider it as a hedge against inflation, then we will naturally see, well, it could even become even more volatile again. Yeah. You, I, I think there are scenarios you could see. You could see volatility. You know, I think everybody expects the volatility is going to go down. But depending on, you know, some people expect we're really entering into turbulent, you know, financial times. And mm-hmm. I think there's reason. It's you know whether or not that happens, it's reasonable to believe that. Um, and yeah, you could see increasing volatility. You can look at gold in 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 the Weimar Germany, right? Um, you know, I don't know if you've seen that chart, but it's, you know, yeah, it's this it. up and down, up and down. And, you know, that's during a time of, uh, you know, where gold was basically the best thing to own. That was, that was the best way. Um, and yet the volatility increased. So I think that's definitely reasonable. So how would you explain then the, the, the run-up we had with Bitcoin in the last couple of years was kind of followed the typical every four-year cycle? Um, but you wouldn't explain the previous cycles as being uh, people hedging against inflation. Um, would you say, you know, how do, how do you square that circle? Because it's almost like uh, Bitcoin has matured over this last four years and has become correlated to the rest of the economy. Is it coincidence? So in the previous cycles, I mean, there was still tremendous monetary expansion going on. I mean, since 2008, which is literally from the moment Bitcoin was born, we have been in an era of unprecedented monetary expansion. And so there were fits and starts, and I I might be wrong on this, but I even believe the top in 2017 coincided with the Fed contracting, hiking rates and contracting the monetary supply. So actually that, that top, I believe, actually coincided with that okay. point. But even, even if it didn't, even if I'm wrong on that timing, um, we have been in an era of unprecedented monetary expansion where the entire story, Bitcoin's ups and downs, has, uh, has coincided with that. Now, earlier on, there were much more significant existential risks to Bitcoin, right? Um, there was questions of if it would even survive. If after Mt. Gox... Who even knows what this thing is going to look like? And are there, you know, the the fork wars? And you know, are there is Bitcoin ever even going to get adopted? So in in those earlier times when Bitcoin is much younger, I think you can obviously say that a lot of the investment, both you know, people buying it and people getting worried and selling it, had a lot more to do with just is this thing going to survive? Is it going to get any measure of adoption? 
we think it's the future, we think it's a scam. Um, and that had a much larger role in the beginning. And then as it's matured, um, like something I see today in this cycle compared to 2018. In 2018, after the run, I felt that people were legitimately concerned about the future of Bitcoin. Like, oh my God, we yeah. got swept away in this whole wave. What if this is just nothing? What if this is hot air? At least, you know, for people new to it. And, you know, I'm not embarrassed to admit I had those concerns. I've had them. Danny's had them. We've yeah. all had them. Yeah, we've all had them, right? You know, and and that was a, that was a real concern in 2018. You know, it was like uh, you're hungover after the party and you're like, Oh man, like was I was I wrong? Is this just have so much more risk? Is it so much just uh, less likely to do what I thought it was going to do? But in this cycle, I don't know many people that have that same concern or that same degree of concern. I think there are risks about oh, well, how low do we think it's going to go, and what's going to happen, and you know maybe some regulatory questions. But this sort of existential question of like, is Bitcoin even real? Does it even have any substance? Most people, I think, aren't thinking that. And, and that's just one of, the, one of the differences is as it's matured, its performance, its value, its success, I think has been more tied to what's happening in the world and how we're going to navigate the current environment rather than just this, is Bitcoin legit? And do you think Bitcoin will remain intrinsically linked to decisions of the Fed, or do you think eventually it just decouples? As far, as long as fiat currencies, the central bank uh, paradigm is the dominant monetary paradigm, Bitcoin is a contrarian hedge against that. That continues until the world, until a world where Bitcoin is in some way the primary monetary paradigm. In a world where Bitcoin is just money, then it has a very different dynamic. And I'm not speculating on, I, I think there's multiple outcomes, right? I, 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 I don't think that it's just like inevitable that Bitcoin becomes like the dominant paradigm of money. I think there are scenarios and, you know, I might catch some heat for this, but I, I think there are scenarios where in the same way that gold has existed alongside fiat currencies, I think, and I do think for the foreseeable future, Bitcoin just exists alongside fiat currencies. And I think there are scenarios where it could become the dominant paradigm and I think there are other scenarios where it is still successful, it's still widely used, it's still adopted, but there is also um, an, another monetary system going on. I think both of those are options. And, but it is, um, I think as long as Bitcoin is a contrarian minority monetary system in relationship to a dominant one, it's going to have this dynamic. And so now you know this and you've gone down this rabbit hole, how, how has this changed any of the ways you maybe consider about buying Bitcoin, holding Bitcoin, or anything to do with your conviction? Yeah, I, this, so to me, this, this really doesn't, it doesn't weaken my conviction. I'm in no way, this in no way I think weakens the argument for Bitcoin. I actually think, uh, like, let's, 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 let's think about this from scratch. What do we want Bitcoin to be? Do we want Bitcoin to be this asset that only does well when the world gets utterly messed up and everything is, is screwed and we don't have enough stuff? Is that the only scenario we want Bitcoin to do well on? Like, like real supply, like consumer price and supply chain problems are bad for people. They're bad for the world. They're literally human race becoming less abundant and poorer. 
Or is that what we're betting on? Is, is that, you know, is it, or are we just so worried that humans are not going to be able to operate society that we need to, we need to own this asset? Or do we want an asset that protects us against irresponsible central bank decisions, right? They're, they're kind of these two different paradigms. One of them, you're bearish on humanity. You think humans aren't going to do well. We're not going to produce stuff. We're not going to be efficient. The other one, you're bearish on central bankers and governments. And I know which one I'm betting on. I'm betting on humans, yeah. right? I, I, what I'm concerned about is the governments, the money spending, the debt, the central bankers. This is the system we've implemented. I, I want the asset that protects me against that. I don't, I, don't, I don't care if things go down if Saudi Arabian oil production goes offline. Yeah. Like, you know, we will figure it out. And if we don't, we have much bigger problems. So I'm going to be keeping a much closer eye on what the Fed is doing. Uh, we had Preston Pish on the show recently. He thinks a massive print is coming. Mm-hmm. I do too. Yeah, you do too. I do too. So they're, they're trapped. Yeah, so they're trapped. And he thinks they're going to print like they've never printed before. Like, potentially trillions. And if that does happen, then we would expect Bitcoin to go up. Precisely. That is that is what I think is Bitcoin will go up dramatically when the direction of monetary expansion changes, which is going to occur un- unless something very unexpected happens when the Fed pivots. And that pivot could be kind of, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be rate cuts. Because there is a, there's an increasing probability that the Fed may actually have to bail out Japan or Europe or both. Um, there is a precedent in 2008. There's something called uh, swap lines. And basically, it, it's, it's literally QE for other countries. It's saying, we're going to, at the Fed, we're going to print money and we're going to buy your bonds. We're going to buy the Japanese bonds. We're going to buy the euro bonds. And um, I, I think there's a meaningful probability that one or both of those occur. And in that, the, the Fed could continue hiking rates in the U.S. while also printing money to stabilize Japan or, or Europe in the crises they're facing. And so that could be a form of a pivot. There, there is monetary expansion there. They could start to cut rates. They could, they could even just like slow down the hikes. Hold on. Is this the, because the, we hit the euro dollar parity. Yes. And that's a huge risk to the US in that that continues because that would make American exports too expensive. Yes. So is the idea to buy up European bonds by the US government print money to do that to bring the prices back to bring So it would have the result of making the dollar yeah. lowering the value of the dollar, which is, we need that, right? We yeah. can't sustain the where, where the dollar is today is ultimately not going to be good for us. First, it hurts them. So when mm. the dollar goes up a lot, it hurts foreign countries first, yeah. but then it comes back and hurts America. So we, we don't, America doesn't want it to stay uh, as high as it is. So that would be beneficial, but I don't even think that's the main reason. That's, okay. that's like an added benefit. The real reason is literally to maintain the social fabric, to keep society operating wow. in, in, in the face of a profound energy crisis. Um, and, and that's the case in both Japan and Europe. Europe, it's obviously the natural gas, you know, Putin-Russia dynamic that's making things very expensive over there. Japan is, they're not a natural energy producer. So they have to buy all their energy. They have to import most of their energy in the form of fossil fuels. And because they've been engaged in yield curve control, um, 
the yen has fallen precipitously, yeah. meaning it's more expensive for them to import energy. Um, and so they basically just need money to buy oil and to, and to buy energy. And so it, it's it's literally a question of social stability. And and you know, there's a lot of there's plenty of people to listen to that are pessimists. I, I'm not a pessimist. I I am I'm a I you know. I say these things to talk about the issues and talk about the scenarios. I think humans are very resourceful. So I'm not saying this is like uh, everything's going to fall apart, but Japan needs that support or they're going to be in trouble, right? And so I think that is going to happen. And that'll, that'll give them breathing room and it'll cement you know, their alliance with the U.S. Um, but, but those are all this, my point here, though, is that there's all these different angles in which the Fed could pivot. There's all these different angles at which they can start to expand the money in the system without necessarily, you know, cutting interest rates 100 basis points or restarting QE. And I would expect that's what we're going to see. We're not just going to see Jerome Powell come out in a couple months and say, you know, QE's back, baby. We're going to print so much money, more money than you've ever seen. Like, that's absolutely Let's go. Not, yeah, that's absolutely not going to happen because he would lose credibility. And that's the other pressure they're under is they need to, it's very important for them to maintain credibility. Um, and so they're, they're walking a tightrope. Damn. Is there anything I've not asked you in this that you wish I had? I want to uh, I want to talk about bonds. Yes, please do. Alchemy. Yeah, yeah. So this is something that I think is was really fascinating. So if you talk to uh, the average the average you know traditional finance or traditional economist, there's this thing you've probably heard that said uh, you know QE didn't print money, and that's because there's no commercial lending, dollars aren't created, and CPI didn't go super high, uh, and that's why they say that. Uh, I think that's wrong. And I, I, I want to give the example because I think, I think the bond example is really fascinating. So what a bond is, and I think people, this isn't always clear, is let's say I, you know, I lend you $10,000. Mm-hmm. I say, you know, here, Peter, here's $10,000. I transfer it from my bank account. Thank and, you. Yeah. And you agree to pay me back $10,500 in two years. A couple payments, some interest, then you pay it all back. Great. The bond is the, a bond is nothing more than that agreement. It's it's a promise. That's literally all it is. There is nothing else to it. It is just you telling me that Stephen, you know, I'm going to pay you back ten thousand five hundred dollars. That's the bond. And so in that scenario, there is no money creation, right? Because I take ten thousand dollars from my bank account, I send it to you. You now have those dollars. No money has been created. You have to pay me back ten thousand five hundred. But in order to do that. You need to get the extra $500 from somewhere, from operating your awesome podcast. And so you do what you do best, and you you generate some extra money, and you use that to pay me back. Great. No money creation. It's completely net neutral, healthy, productive, functional. We need that. But now what happens if I take your promise, your, your abstract agreement, and I go to a bank and I say, hey, I need a loan. I need $5,000 because I want to take an awesome vacation and I want you to lend it to me. And I don't have any, I don't have any collateral except I've got this agreement from, from Peter. And you know Peter, you know, you, you, know, you know, he's a trustworthy guy. He's good for the money. He's going to pay it back. I'm good. Yeah. And 
the bank says, oh, of course, great. That's a, that's a, that's a good quality bond. We think there's a, a really good chance that that, that money is going to get paid back. And so I deposit that the agreement, your promise to me, as collateral, and they lend money to me against it. Now, hold on. There's now $10,000 that I transferred to you, and there is now this thing that has been created from thin air that is the bond that is now being valued at $10,000. There's now two things. There is twice as much financial value in the system, and the bond has been created from thin air. It's not an asset. It's actually debt. It, it is debt, and you could not pay that back, or there could be issues, or it could get paid back partially. And we have now suddenly done this incredible alchemy where a, a nothing, a promise, a promise that is debt is now considered an asset. And now not only is there now $20,000 of value in the system, the 10,000 actual dollars that I gave to you, $10,500 that's been created from thin air in the form of an asset that's used as collateral. But now the bank prints, actually prints, like real, real traditional currency creation, $5,000 and lends it to me. There's now a total of $25,000 that has been created from my original 10000 And it can get worse. And now that bank can take its loan to me and say, that's a bond. And they can give it to another bank who can give it to another bank. And suddenly there's $50,000 of financial collateral in a system that all started from 10,000 actual dollars. Sounds like how we got what happened in 2008 and the contagion from that. Is this, is this essentially rehypothecation? It's also what just happened in crypto. Yeah. It's also three arrows. It's also Celsius. It's also, I mean, it was specifically three arrows, right? It's the same. It's a story as old as time. But is this basically one of the problems of fractional reserve lending? Yeah, it's one of the problems of rehypothecation. And yeah. But it's specifically, I mean, specifically... There's rehypothecation, and then there's this strange thing where debt is an asset. And that's weird. That, because that, debt is a liability. Debt is a liability. Debt is not an asset. But we have built this entire system where debt is an asset. And because that's we weird. trust that people will pay back too much. We don't allow for mistakes. And and when, so what happens if you pay me back, right? Like so let's say in this scenario everything gets paid back. Everything disappears. Yeah, but it's not 50,000 being packed. It's 10. Yeah, it's 10 being paid back through the system. And so you making good on your debt of, of 10,500 extinguishes $50,000 of liquidity from the system. It's actually bad for the system in some ways. You paying back your debt is bad. Isn't that crazy? It's fucked up. Like, how did we... How did we think that is a, a good way to operate a financial system? I'm not going to pay you back, dude. <laughs> We're going to see this shit collapse. The banks are cheering. <laughs> Damn. Man, this is fascinating. This is really, really interesting. Uh, Danny, you got anything you want to add? No, I don't think so. That was really good. Yeah, really, really interesting. Right. If people want to follow you, read more of your incredible work, where should they go to? Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter. We'll get we'll get my uh, bio on the episode. It's Zambala Hoddle. You won't know how to spell <laughs> yeah. that. We'll get it plugged in. Uh, we've got the article. We'll link to uh, Bitcoin and the true definition of inflation. That's hosted on Swan. So we'll we'll link that up. Yeah. And uh, what are you working on next? What am I working on next? I'm working on onboarding another no. thousand what people article? to Bitcoin. What article? I don't know. You, you've got to you got to go deeper with this. Yeah, yeah. I think there, you should there will go, be into, more. go into the contagion stuff a bit more. Yeah, that'll be fascinating. That'll, okay, but we should do this again. I mean, let me know you, when you've worked on something else, and we'll let you know when we're in town. We we would definitely Perfect. do something again. But this was fascinating. Um, yeah. Wow. 
We should go and eat and jump in the pool. <laughs> All right. Let's do it. Great to meet you, man. Thank you. It was you. great. It was great. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to reach out to me, please do get in touch. My email is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I do try and reply to all messages, but you can also go and check out my Telegram group. There's a bunch of people in there always talking about Bitcoin. All right, I will see you all very, very soon.